Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. The playoffs will be starting shortly after this podcast comes out. So in the time before that, I wanted to make sure that we went through the NBA awards. So I'm here today with Tyler Metcalf and Jeremy Stevens. Tyler, how are you doing? Doing great. Happy to be back on and just ready for these playoffs to start after a long season and a weird last couple nights with no basketball. And Jeremy, how about you? I'm good and I'm ready for the Celtics to literally kill me. <laughs> I think Marcus Smart already did that, didn't he? I think we're going to have like six more decapitations by game three. Well, you know, there isn't really a Celtic series without at least some amount of blood and murder. So someone's going to die. Yeah, there we go. Game of Thrones isn't going to be your death viewing experience. (laughs) You need to watch the Celtics game instead. Yeah. Oh, my God. Anyway, so let's move on from the Celtics into some of these NBA awards. And the place to start is the MVP. I've said this on a couple of recent podcasts, but... This is, if not the most difficult MVP debate of the last decade, certainly one of the most difficult of this past decade. We've seen two truly incredible seasons from the frontrunners for this award. Interestingly, all three of us had the same player at the top of the list, so I wanted to start there. All three of us believe that Giannis Adetokounmpo should be the MVP this year, and it's Clearly a cliche to say, you know, oh, any other year and this would clearly be James Harden's award, but this does kind of ring true this year. And when you're talking about Giannis, he's someone who's one of the best, if not the best defensive players in the league. And we'll get into that in a bit as well. He's an incredible offensive force, almost unprecedented in his ability to score around the basket as someone who isn't a seven foot plus center. And his team ended up with the best record in basketball and he had one other all-star on his team who was maybe a borderline all-star, I think would be fair to say. The season that we've seen from Giannis is incredible and it's really too bad that James Harden's ridiculous offensive performance from this season isn't going to end up winning him an MVP award, at least in my mind, because of what we've seen from Giannis. But Tyler, how did you sort of break down the voting decision between the two of them at the top? Yeah, so I mean, this one was really tough. I mean, everyone said it. It's pr- probably one of the closest MVP races in a long time. But just Giannis's all-around game and his leap to dominance and being the best defender on the best defensive team with the best record and being an offensive force that no one's really been able to figure out how to stop, I think just gave him a slight edge. What Harden's been able to do scoring-wise has been just absurd, and he's been doing things that we've never seen. Um, you know, I I hate the way he plays, just that foul hunting and the ISO and all that, but what no one in the world can do what he does. And just the offensive performance that he's done this year is incredible, and it's a shame that he may not win MVP, and I had him second, but what Giannis has done on both ends of the floor on the best team record wise, it's been transcendent, I think, and just gives him the slight edge over Harden. Jeremy, your thoughts? Yeah, I changed my mind on this probably every single day for two and a half months. And the the stats kind of threw me Giannis's direction because he he's just by every possible measure He's actually just doing better, and I thought for a long time that Harden's scoring alone would be enough. But Giannis is actually way more efficient. And something that really stood out for me, usually 
you know, I like to go by eye test more than this, but Giannis was taking 17.3 shots a game and making about 10. Harden was taking 24.5 shots a game and making 10.8. So even if you factor in all the threes, of which Harden has hit considerably more, and you factor in all the free throws, which Harden takes considerably more than everyone else, he's still less efficient than Giannis offensively. Um, so I think that matters a lot. I've always been a big proponent of efficiency. So you look at true scoring, Giannis is better. Obviously, look at defense, Giannis is way better. Giannis had more blocks and less steals, so I thought that was kind of a wash. But what I think people see with Harden that I find to be overrated is people just see really, really big volume and assume that no one else could do it. And in one sense, sure, probably almost any other player in the league can't average 36 a game, but I'm just not someone to reward high volume for the sake of high volume, especially if his his efficiency is so poor. So just on both ends, I think Giannis had a better season. This is more anecdotal than anything else, but there were so many games this season where Harden put up absolutely ridiculous stat lines and it was like a five-point game. And there was a stretch there in the middle of the season where Chris Paul was injured and Clint Capella was injured and it was really just Harden carrying the team by himself. And yet still I find myself picking Giannis in this debate. And I think the defense is a really important aspect of this. Harden gets a lot more flack than I think he deserves at this point in his career. Emphasis on at this point in his career in terms of his defense. He is and has been for a few years now one of the better post defenders in the league. But ultimately, he's still a below average defender. Ultimately, he is not helping you on that end of the floor. He does get a lot of steals, which are at least useful but not enough to make up for the number of times he gets caught ball watching or he just sort of hangs around. And again, you know, it's a clear difference and a clear positive difference between back when he was a meme for his lazy, lazy defense, but he's not that player anymore. That being said, he's still so many levels below Giannis on that end of the floor that even if you argue that Harden has the offensive edge, and I think he does ever so slightly, even though he is a volume scorer, he is still pretty efficient. I think he had like 61% true shooting this year. I mean, he's still an efficient scorer. It's just that Giannis is also an incredibly efficient scorer, and furthermore, he's a defensive menace, whereas Harden's a defensive minus. I've got the true scoring right in front of me. Uh, Harden 6-1-6, and then Giannis was 6-44. That's what's scoring almost all in the paint. And that's really incredible, with especially with how how much threes kind of influence that. And Giannis is still doing that with almost all of his stuff coming at the rim. Um, just kind of shows how unstoppable he is on that end of the floor. And when I said earlier that like that I gave Giannis kind of the edge based mostly on, or a lot on his defense. Um, Nick, you touched on this, but it's not it's not a slight on Harden because he has gotten better on that floor and he's one of the leaders in deflections and steals this year and is a really solid post defender. So it's more of just praising Giannis on that end and not as much indicting Harden's uh, lack thereof defense. That's the other thing about this whole debate is that on Giannis fan's side, on Harden fan's side, it's sort of like you have to denigrate the other guy to make the case for your candidate. And I really don't like that, especially in the context of this year's vote when you're just, you know, picking nits to try and figure out who you're going to put in the top slot there. But they both had spectacular seasons, both had 
record-breaking seasons in a lot of ways, and you're really just splitting hairs at this point to be like, okay, who is number one on a very clear two-person ballot that might end up in like a 51%, 49% split when the final vote tallies come out. But we've talked a lot about the top two players on the MVP ballot in all of our minds. And let's move on to the player that we all put at number three in Paul George. And I will admit that earlier this season, when we did the Oklahoma City Thunder podcast, that I thought that Paul George should have been second in MVP balloting over James Harden just because of Paul George's incredible defensive impact, because of his career highs in scoring, because of the increased role that he was taking in the Oklahoma City Thunder offense. And of course, shortly after that, he hurt his shoulder. And coming back from that shoulder injury, he just hasn't been the same player that he was in January when he and Harden were duking it out for most ridiculous month of January in the NBA this year. So I still have Paul George third. He still had a remarkable season, but it's kind of upsetting in a way that he has tailed off so significantly over the past month and a half or so of the season because this could have been an even more interesting race if he'd been able to keep up his level of play. Tyler, your thoughts? I mean, the season he had is incredible and something we've kind of been waiting for him for a while now, especially ever since he broke his legs. So it's really encouraging to see him get back to, or I guess, reach this level. Um, it's a shame that he's kind of finished on a slower note, uh, but that's likely, hopefully, due to the injury, I guess. Um but his season overall, both ends of the floor, we've kind of seen him take over that team and become kind of the alpha, I guess. And they're just a completely different team when he's on the floor. I mean, his on-court, off-court numbers are absurd. When he's on the court, they have a net rating of plus 8.1. And then when he comes off, it plummets to minus 9. I and mean, that's just kind of shows the impact he has. Um the biggest discrepancy being their offensive rating just plummets because that team really doesn't have any shooting on it. And he provides some pretty consistent uh, threat from behind the arc and just his overall season. I think it's a shame that it kind of ended this way because of the injury, but he's been incredible and definitely earned. Um, it kind of sounds tacky to say that he's earned a third place vote, but um it, it, it's really impressive, and he deserves to be on the ballot. I like that you brought up the uh, the on-off numbers, even though I kind of don't like that stat because one of the points I wanted to make was that um, the Thunder roster really isn't that good in my mind. And I actually had Paul George for that reason as like a front runner for MVP around January. I think when we did, I think I did a trade deadline podcast for the site, and because um, because Westbrook has been so terrible on offense, and I think. I'm I'm in the camp that some of his other numbers are a little bloated um, by stat chasing. So for, I, I kind of viewed Paul George as carrying this team just like Harden and Giannis were carrying their teams. But I think we all agree that the Thunder flamed out just a little bit. Uh, George's shoulder might be hurt. So, yeah, I, I thought he was carrying uh, more of a load than he got credit for. And, but yeah, it, it just, <laughs> the other two candidates just had such absurd seasons that it's not really meant for him to be in the conversation anymore, but he had a good, I, I would still call him the first half season MVP because the Rockets were bad for a while. Even without being at the top of the MVP ballot, Paul George still did something that pretty much no one could have expected, which is that he kind of became the 
offensive focus for the Thunder, which granted Russell Westbrook runs that team. Russell Westbrook will run that team until the day that he retires. But Paul George was, if not their primary offensive option, then certainly a 1B on offense. Whereas last year, I thought he was a pretty clear number two. And that, you know, makes a difference for this Thunder team in terms of their chances going forward of building something beyond a team that's in the back half of the playoff seating. Yeah, and you mentioned Westbrook still being kind of, you know, the alpha, at least by personality, but the way George was actually able to take over games um, and be reliable scoring late in close games, like unlike he has been in the past, and we saw Westbrook defer to him in a lot of these games, and that's something we really haven't seen Westbrook ever do, and, you know, part of that may be his inefficiencies, but I think a bigger portion of that is just how good Paul George has been for them on the offensive end. Maybe I'm a little too harsh, but I I just thought Westbrook got a little too much credit for deferring when his shooting was so terrible that it almost felt like a no brainer for him to give the ball up at the end of the game. I don't want to give credit to him as much for that because that should have been something that was obvious, but I will say at least that, I'm not sure I was expecting him to be willing to relinquish that. And even though that's not necessarily a positive thing that I was worried about him not actually relinquishing control for that, you know, we do at least have to be willing to admit, at least in my opinion, we have to be at least willing to admit that this is not the Russell Westbrook that we have seen since Kevin Durant left town and him acknowledging that, oh, wow, I actually have a really, really good player alongside me. Maybe I should get in the ball more often. You know, he could have just, taken his shooting slump and decided that the way to get out of it was shooting 45 times a game. And I think the Thunder should be very, very happy that he did not choose to do that. Let's move on to the number four spot on our MVP ballot, which is exactly the same. Once again, across all three of us, clearly so much disagreement here. We're going to have a lot of fun with that, but number four, we all have Nikola Jokic. I think in my mind, it's pretty clear why the Nuggets were the second seed in the Western Conference after missing the playoffs last year. And really the only thing that changed is that Paul Millsap got healthy and they started using some of the guys on the end of their bench more and they turned out to be a lot better than everybody expected. But I think a lot of the reason that they turned out to be better than everybody expected is because they have, if not the best passing center in the history of the game, then the guy who we would have been talking about alongside Arvidas Sabonis if we had been able to see more of his career. Jeremy, your thoughts? Yeah, I love the way... Just watching the Nuggets is so cool because... <laughs> like, Jokic is so good, but he, he's, like, really slow. And that's obviously, like, the, the greatest point of criticism. So the way they play, it always feels like he's got the ball in the center of everything. And there's, like, this maelstrom of players kind of swirling around him, cutting, setting screens, and getting open for threes and stuff. And, you know, there's, there's kind of a... It's not so much of a comparison now because Jokic has been so good, but there was a little bit of like an Al Horford comparison last year where it seemed like they were a little closer. And it's kind of the undervalued thing I see there is that he makes the correct decision like all of the time. And I don't think people always pick up on the value of just correct decision making, even if it's not a flashy pass, even if you can't dunk on people. Um, He has the ball a lot and he always does the right thing. I just think that's super valuable. He's become a super efficient scorer. So you kind of you kind of have to have that, and um, I I, th- I think he benefits from his teammates being able to mask his defense a little bit. But you know, that's the NBA. So 
I think it's super well-deserved. I think he should get a ton of credit for the Nuggets being the two seed because I don't even really know. I don't know what they – like if he gets hurt for long term, I don't even know what they are anymore because he kind of just is the system. So uh, that's why, you know, later on we'll talk about how I give their coach Malone a lot of credit for featuring him so prominently because that's that's kind of what fuels the team. I just really like the kind of different aspect that he provides with his passing ability. I mean, it's something we really don't see out of a whole lot of teams where the offense runs through the center and it's not through his post-up game. It's through him feeding people, starting the fast break, finding cutters from the top of the key. It's just he can hurt you from really anywhere. And I'd like to see his you know outside shooting be a little more consistent. And they're just every now and then he has these weird games where he'll only score like two points, um, which just doesn't really make sense. But overall this season, and he's made a huge jump and has been kind of the, the leading factor and why the Nuggets have been the two seed for the majority of the season. And finally, the number five spot on our respective fake MVP ballots. We actually have some disagreement this time, so let's talk about it. Jeremy and I both had Steph Curry as the fifth player on our ballot. Tyler, you had Damian Lillard. I think it's very similar arguments for both of them. But Tyler, since you were the one that had Lillard instead of Curry, let's go to you first. What were your thoughts on this final spot on the MVP ballot? So I changed the spot pretty much every five minutes. Um, I was really close with Curry. But just at the end of the day, I I just kind of went with you know the definition of most valuable. If you take Curry off the Warriors, they obviously hurt, but they still have a ton of talent. If you take Lillard off the Trailblazers, they they're going to be awful. Um, just the way he's carried them this year, especially through these injuries down the stretch here, I think has been really impressive. Um, he's just, I think he's still one of the most underrated players in the NBA, um, and just the the way he's carried them and led them through the injuries, the weird roster makeup and a lot of people, you know, were picking them to not even make the playoffs, especially after last year's playoff debacle. So just seeing them being yet again competitive, um, I, I just gave him the slight edge over Curry for that. Jeremy, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm actually a huge Lillard fan, mostly just like for narrative reasons, how, he, how he's like so loyal to the city. And he's a super clutch player, so that causes for all those dramatic moments. Um, it It's just weird that like the, the Warriors are the, the – Top seed again, hooray. And um, surprising absolutely everyone that they were the top seed. <laughs> can't, I really can't believe it. But um, the thing is, they, they really had all of the makings of a team that could fall into disaster. And they're just so stupidly good that even with Draymond kind of falling off and Clay had a weird start and their bench honestly isn't that good and really hasn't been for two or three years, uh, they're still the first seed. So you look at Curry and you look at Durant and you don't look at much else there, to be honest. And um, so between him and Durant, it's 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 kind of hard to pick. But Curry's just so ridiculous. And just if I remember correctly, he was injured for a little bit, but didn't miss a ton of games. So he, he comes back, and it's like a brand-new Warriors team with Curry out there. So that's what gives him the edge over Durant for me. So, um, yeah, I, I, I love Lillard, but I think this was – this year was as good as any, to be honest, uh, as as far as seeing how valuable Curry is to the to the best Western team. I always lean on this stat a bit because it still boggles my mind that this is true. But in the 2016-17 season, 
when Steph Curry was on the floor, the Warriors shot above 40% from three-point range, which led the league by a significant margin. And when he was off the floor, they shot 32% from deep, which would have been 29th in the league. (laughs) The impact that Steph Curry has on the offensive end of the floor just by being on the court, he doesn't need to touch the ball. He just needs to stand there, and someone needs to tag him every time he steps within 35 feet. And sometimes, honestly, every time he steps within 40 feet. And the impact that that has on an offense, just to have someone who's always got one guy on him, always got another guy shading towards him in case he decides to pull up from deep, that opens all of the rest of the Warriors offense. And Kevin Durant is, I think, the kind of player who's going to be pretty much exactly the same wherever he goes. He's going to put up eight points a quarter. He's going to play really solid defense. He's going to grab a couple rebounds. He might go out a couple times on the fast break. I'm not sure that Steph Curry really impacts Kevin Durant's game all that much, but everyone else on the court is just a different player when they have Steph Curry taking away so much of the attention of the defense every time he steps on the floor. And even though maybe he's not as valuable in the sense that the Warriors would still be one of the best teams in basketball without him, I think people still underrate how truly unprecedented his impact is on the offensive end of the floor, just because of the fact that you can't leave him open for even more than a second. But now that we've gone through the MVP ballot, let's move on to defensive player of the year. And we all have the same three players. We've already talked quite a bit about two of them. And I'm a bit surprised, honestly, that all three of us had Giannis at the number one spot. For me, I think that Everything that the Bucs have done defensively this season starts with Giannis. And Brooke Lopez deserves a lot of credit for being a really effective rim protector. And Mike Budenholzer deserves a lot of credit for designing the defensive scheme such that Brooke Lopez can sit back in the paint. But everything they do relies on the fact that Giannis can be anywhere on the court almost instantaneously and close every single gap in a defense. It allows the Bucks perimeter defenders to play up really close to their opposition. It allows Eric Bledsoe to be a lockdown defender without having to worry that if he gives the guy a step, it's going to be a basket because he knows that if he gives the guy a step, Giannis is going to be right there. And the impact that Giannis has on the defensive end is not the same at all as Steph Curry, but it does have a sort of similar feel to it in my mind in that Every time the opposing team is on offense, someone is always looking around for where's Giannis, where's Giannis, where's Giannis, because if they don't know where he is at any given time, he's just going to come right back into the play and break everything up. So that's sort of why I have Giannis at the top slot. I also think that Rudy Gobert was not as good as he was on the defensive end last year, and so he let up the reins just enough in my mind. And obviously Paul George, as we already talked about, not having as good of a close to the season, I think that left the award to Giannis in my mind which would make him the first player to win MVP and Defensive Player of the Year since Hakeem Olajuwon. And if that does end up happening, I think it would be very well-deserved. Jeremy, your thoughts? You know, I I was really, like, just trying to come up with reasons to give this award to someone else. And it was really hard to pick, and it was was tough to pick the all-defensive teams this year, too, because with so many teams this year scoring so many points, the defensive stats across the board are just not that good. Um, But Giannis, obviously, has just been really good all year. Paul George, for some reason, his defensive stats stink. When you watch him, he looks great. He led the league in steals. And I remember seeing some games down the stretch where he was hitting the big shots and getting the stops at the other end, which 
is is nearly impossible as far as I'm concerned. There are so few players who have seasons like that. Um, and then yeah, Gobert just regressed. The Jazz kind of had their own kind of slowish start. So I feel like this was award really up for grabs. But um, Giannis was the only like truly spectacular defender who was who was consistent all season. So kind of just goes to him by default. I don't feel good about it, but just teams in general just didn't look that good defensively to me. Yeah, and I, I went with Giannis just because yeah, he can guard any position on the floor at an extremely high level. And he's one of the best rim protectors in the league. Just what he does at in every spot of the floor defensively is incredibly impressive and incredibly intimidating. And he's the leader of the, the league's best defense. So I, I thought it was kind of a, a no-brainer to go with him. We've already talked a lot about Paul George and his defense and also his falling off towards the end of the year. Jeremy, you also brought up how his advanced numbers maybe didn't look as good as the eye test for George. Tyler had Paul George third, Jeremy and I both had him second, and then Jeremy and I had Rudy Gobert third, whereas Tyler, you had him second. I think with Rudy Gobert, the case is pretty clear. He's the best rim protector in the NBA. The Jazz's entire defensive scheme depends on funneling shots to the rim to Rudy Gobert. But the other thing is that that scheme also works almost exactly as well with Derek Favors in the center position. And I'm not saying that as a way to say that Rudy Gobert is a system player because I don't believe that in any way, shape, or form. That's more of a compliment for the incredible year that Derek Favors is having He led the NBA this year in lowest percentage of shots made when he contested them within six feet of the basket. It was 49% at the rim last time I checked, which is a ridiculous number. But Utah had a really slow start to the year once again. They had a really strong close to the year once again. A lot of that had to do with schedule, at least. And I just didn't think that Rudy Gobert was as dominant this year as he was last year. And with that in mind, I sort of lean towards the two forward type players ahead of him. I'll just add that um, with a lot of like really just paint dominant centers in in today's NBA, I just see a lot of teams that know how to move them out of the paint because so many other centers can shoot threes now. So it it isn't really as viable to anchor your defense in that way against most teams. And I even say that with, uh, you know, I watch Al Horford who, who – that's how the Celtics win a lot of their games is logging down the paint with him. But even then, I think perimeter defense is so important that um, it, it's just hard to reward centers who just block a lot of shots and aren't as mobile outside of the paint. I think that's a great point. And we saw last year with Rudy Gobert in the playoffs that when you had an opposing center that could take him out of the paint, he just wasn't anywhere near as effective. Whereas with Giannis and Paul George, and Giannis in particular, they can guard basically anyone at any time out the perimeter inside the paint and they're just more versatile defensively than Rudy Gobert is and the NBA is certainly trending towards a direction where versatility is more important than almost anything else and now let's move on to rookie of the year all three of us had the exact same top three in the exact same order Luka Doncic number one Trey Young second and DeAndre Ayton third and let's just start with Luka and Trey Young because That was the debate that started to heat up towards the end of the season, which did not take into account the fact that A, Trey Young was the worst defender in basketball this year per defensive RPM, 
And B, he had a god-awful month of November with a 44% true shooting percentage. And maybe he's had a better March and April, but Luca's had a pretty spectacular March and April and has been just as spectacular the entire year. And I just don't think it's fair to award Trey Young the Rookie of the Year for having a slightly better final 30 games when he had a far worse first 50. Tyler, your thoughts? Yeah, and it's rookie of the year, not rookie of the last two months. Trey's been a lot of fun. He's been so much better than the start of the year. And, you know, he's solidified that, you know, that trade wasn't the worst thing in the world. And I I still don't agree with it on draft night. But, I mean, he's solidified that he's going to be a player in this league. Um, He's an atrocious defender. He's one of the, he was the worst defender in the league this year and one of the worst all time. Um, but what Luca and but what Luca did at the start of the year, um, and he's fallen off a little bit, uh, especially his shooting numbers. But they've kind of just dismantled that team and have been trying to tank, and just his his body of work for the entire year, um, I, I think, gives it to him. And Trey's been a lot of fun, but it, that first half of the year was so bad that people were questioning if he could even make it in the league. Um, so just the fact that Luca has been solid and a sure thing for the entire season, I, I think gives it to him pretty clearly. So I wrote a little article for our website about Luca's rookie year in context. And I kind of picked apart a lot of little details, but what I think is the most important is that Luca survived a roster overhaul and still played pretty well. So in the middle of the year, Dallas gets rid of Wes Matthews, DeAndre Jordan, and Harrison Barnes, who as far as I'm concerned, are all at least decent NBA players. And then at times they can heat up. Don't, don't get me started <laughs> on Harrison Barnes. I, I'm just saying at least, very least decent. And occasionally they heat up, which when you have three guys like that, and then you have Doncic, who is a borderline all-star already. And they had a couple bench guys that were okay, like Jalen Brunson actually looked pretty good. And Dwight Powell. They, they, it was like, you know, they were like a decent little, little 500 Western Conference team, which is pretty respectable. And then they, you know, they get rid of three prominent role players. So now it's kind of Luca just trying to figure it out with like whoever decides to put on a Mavs jersey that day. And of course, Dirk was there. And as much as I love him, Dirk just like can't run. So that's a tough situation to figure out. And Luca was still really good. And then obviously all the Trey Young stuff, you guys said it, so I don't have to repeat it. But I, I just think it makes Luca the best rookie by a landslide. And I, I kind of value his size and strength. And if he can lose a few pounds maybe in the next couple of years, he could potentially guard two or three positions where no matter what Trey Young does for the whole rest of his career, he's too small to guard kind of out of his weight class. So I think the ceiling on Luca is still higher. Season he had, still better all around. I, it, it's cool that it became a conversation, but I, I don't really think it's even remotely close. And wrapping up, we all had DeAndre Ayton in the third slot. It was pretty clearly a two-man race, but we should at least give credit to Ayton for the year he had. 16-10, and 10, really efficient on offense, was abysmal at defense to start the year, but to his credit, really did get a lot better over the course of the season. And towards the end of the year, he was guarding Giannis and guarding LeBron and guarding them both pretty effectively. So that really gave me a lot of a hope for the kind of future that DeAndre Ayton could have because... The offense was always going to be there for him. Really, the question was going to be if he could figure it out on the defensive end. And he started to do that over the last few months of the season in a way that I think should be really encouraging for 
the Suns fans that are still around in a rather discouraging situation as long as Robert Sarver owns the team. But moving on to Sixth Man of the Year award, we finally have some disagreement. Yay! So Jeremy and I both went with Lou Williams in the top slot. Tyler, you went with Demondis Sabonis. Both Jeremy and I had him on the ballot, but obviously we did not have him in the top slot. So make your case for the younger Sabonis since we've already talked about the older Sabonis when discussing the great Nikola Jokic. So I'm just kind of sick of this award exclusively going to guys who come off the bench and just score a ton of points. Um, I Lou Will's been awesome for the Clippers. He's a great player. He's deserved the award in the past. But I think just what Sabonis has done this season for the Pacers has been awesome. I mean, he's played so well. He's up to 14 points, shooting 59% from the floor, 52% from three. Granted, so it's barely an, an attempt a game. Um, and rebounding at a nine a game. Um, he's just been really, really good for them and just helps bring in um, a sense of toughness and post-presence when they switch him with Turner. And I just think he's been really good for them this year and brings a well-rounded game to the floor when he comes off the bench. I am so thoroughly in agreement with your hatred of just giving the sixth man award to whoever scores the greatest number of points off the bench. And yet I still went with Lou Williams. I was very, very close to putting Montrez Harrell ahead of him, but ultimately the reason that I ended up deciding on Lou Williams was not actually because of his scoring, but because he has grown an incredible amount as a playmaker during his time with the Clippers. And this year he had one of the best assist percentages off the bench of anyone in the league. He was tasked not just with, scoring every time he came down the floor, but also being a pick and roll initiator. A lot of Montrezl Harrell's success came from being the role man in pick and rolls initiated by Lou Williams. So if Lou was just doing his usual scoring a ton of points and not really doing a whole lot else game, then I would have had a lot harder time putting him in the top slot. But his playmaking this season has been really impressive and really unexpected to me. So ultimately that put him in the top slot for me. But Harold and DeMontis Sabonis both had incredible seasons as less traditional six-man-of-the-year award winners, so they clearly deserve a lot of credit as well. Yeah, this is another award where I'm just looking for any reason to give it to someone else, but when you watch, it, it's not like a Jamal Crawford situation, who, in my opinion, he has one of the most undeserved six-man-of-the-year awards, I think, three or so years ago, where I think a lot of people were in agreement, where it was all shooting, no playmaking, no defense, no nothing, and Maybe Lou Will's not the best defender, but when you watch, he just torches teams, and you almost forget that he's even a bench player, and you have to kind of consider that it's actually, there, there's a unique challenge in, in coming off the bench and, and getting into the offense compared to being in the starting lineup. So I think that is really important. I actually like Sabonis a lot, but yeah, I don't know. Lou, Lou Williams is too good at what he does, so I, I think it's deserved because he does a, a little more than just shoot, and he, he's kind of become like a, a bit of a team leader for, for a team we didn't think would be that good. So part of this is also just rewarding, you know, some Clippers players for overachieving or being as good as they should be. I don't know, but yeah. All right, time for the most ambiguous award in the basketball award slate, the most improved player award. And it's funny for me because there's been a lot more of an argument around this than I kind of expected there to be. 
between Pascal Siakam at number one and D'Angelo Russell. And Jeremy, you actually did have D'Angelo Russell ahead of Siakam for this award. Now, the way that I see it is that if you look at raw numbers, obviously Siakam has improved dramatically. But if you look at per 36 numbers or per 100 possession numbers, he's still taken dramatic leaps in basically every single area of the game. He went from one of the worst three-point shooters in basketball last year to being right about average from there. He's made incredible leaps as a ball handler. He's now actually bringing the ball up the floor in transition a lot. He's been Toronto's third best player the entire season, and he took on a bigger role during the frequent stretch of the season where either Kyle Lowry or Kawhi Leonard was sitting on the bench. And with D'Angelo Russell, he's definitely made a leap, and obviously that was rewarded with his all-star appearance but ultimately, in my mind, D'Angelo Russell was the second overall pick. He was supposed to be this good. Pascal Siakam was the 27th pick, and he didn't show even a third of what he's shown this season as a rookie when really he was just a transition player, energy big man type. And he's changed his game so dramatically. And granted, he was starting to show some of this improvement last year. But even the difference between last year and this year is astronomical in my mind, which is ultimately why I had him ahead of D'Angelo Russell. But Jeremy, since you went the other way, what were your thoughts on this? Yeah, you know, for like the vast majority of the year, I really did think it would have been Siakam. But what it came down to for me is there's, there's, it's hard to quantify, but there is a gap between kind of being a fringe player and an elite role player. And then there's also a gap between being somewhere between decent and good and then going up to all-star. And I think that gap is larger. D'Angelo Russell is leading a playoff team. And I, I just I can't think of many instances where I've seen that, where a guy's a few years in, and that's usually a point where you go, all right, I guess I, guess I kind of know who this guy is now. He can be your starting point guard. You maybe don't want him as your, your go-to crunch time guy. Maybe the Nets have to find someone else. And then he does become that guy. And then the Siakam story is great. He's an incredible defender, obviously improved in every way, just like you said. But I, I just feel like it's something that's not totally unprecedented. It's it's just something that maybe people, um, I hate using the word overrate because I don't think he's overrated, but just this one aspect where it's kind of like he came out of nowhere, whereas D'Angelo was already in the public eye for various reasons, um, some of which were not really basketball related, but um I just think the path that, that Russell took to get to where he is is more challenging, and I think he's kind of hit a higher peak. So I think that gives him an edge in this award to, to, to become an all-star on a playoff team, even though the East isn't amazing. It's still a, a better conference than it has been in the past probably five or six years at least, if I had to guess. So, yeah, I think, I think, he, I think he improved more. I do want to push back on that just a tiny bit, and the only reason I want to do that is because – Last year, at the beginning of the year, D'Angelo Russell was showing a lot of what he has shown this year, and then he got hurt, and when he came back, he wasn't entirely right, and it really sort of bombed a lot of his statistics across the board, but if you just look at the first month and a bit of the 2017-2018 season, he wasn't quite at the level that he ended up getting to this year, but he was pretty close in a way that made it clear, at least to me, that he had this in him. Whereas with Siakam, it was just such a dramatic difference that I think that first month and a half of the year for Russell last year made it harder for me to think of this year as such a massive leap as compared to sort of the way that a lot of other people are viewing it. I think that's fair. I do 
personally, I put a lot of stock in like sustained production. So I, I hear you on the first month, but just to see it for the whole year, I think I think that matters because he, he could have just as easily flamed out. We all had different players in the third slot on our fake most improved ballot. And they're all very different players who I think all approach their candidacy for this award in incredibly different ways. So Tyler, let's start with you on this one. You had another player who made the leap to all-star status this year in Nikola Vucevic. Why did you have him on this ballot in your third slot? I still can't tell if he's actually a good player or not, but just the jump that he's made this year and the, the stats he's putting up and helping lead that Orlando team to the playoffs, I, I just kind of felt like he, he earned some sort of recognition. Um, and I I like the guys that you put third. I thought about them as well. But just making the playoffs on a team that no one expected to make the playoffs and kind of just putting up the numbers he has all year and earning th- that all-star selection, I, I think he just kind of deserved some sort of recognition for uh, the, the, the really impressive um, and really improved season that he's had. Jeremy, you had Atlanta's John Collins in your third overall spot. What are your thoughts on his season? So every year with this most improved thing, right, there's uh, there's, there's always some conversation about how people like to exclude second-year players because I guess it's just too easy to pick a second-year player. When, when you, not you, but the general you, hypothetically, or I guess it's not even hypothetical, when people tell me that they want to exclude second-year players, basically what you're telling me is you want to, round up all the most approved players, and then you want to take them off the list, which I don't understand. So if people want to stand by their unwritten rule, that's fine. I don't really have any emotional attachment to this award, but if we're just, you know, if we're really just going by most improved, uh, I think you have to include Collins. The reason I don't have him maybe a little bit higher is because when teams are really bad and guys just get to get all the shots they want, I take that into consideration. It's like maybe on a good team, this wouldn't matter quite as much. So. And I know that's controversial in its own way, but he, he's just really good after being just okay. So, I, I, you know, I think he's earned it. It's funny because despite all the cracks that I made about it earlier, I think about this award way too much, like way too much. <laughs> and the kind of archetype that I think about for this award, it's either someone who was a role player who became a high-level starter, someone who made the leap from decent starter to all-star, and the type of player who I have at number three on my ballot in Malik Beasley. Last year, Beasley averaged under 10 minutes a game. He shot 34% from deep. He looked like he might be on his way out of the league. And this year, he went from that kind of end of the bench guy to a very important role player for them, averaging 23 minutes a game. He actually started 18 games for them, shot 40% from deep, really took a massive leap on the defensive end of the floor. And he went from someone who I wasn't sure about his long-term NBA future to being someone who I'm pretty confident will stick around as a 3 and D specialist for the next decade or so. And to me, that kind of leap is in many ways the most impressive because even though, you know, there's, as Jeremy, you mentioned earlier, there's a much larger gap than people tend to think there is between decent starter and all-star level player. I think there's a much bigger difference between fringe of the league and clear seventh man because you're jumping a whole lot of guys on that bench to be able to make that kind of jump and Malik Beasley has been really good this year and he was not let's just put it 
you know, as clearly as possible. He was not really good last year at all. And so I was really impressed by the season that we saw from him. But now that I've talked way too much about this award that I think about way too much, let's move on to coach of the year. And this was a really interesting award to think about this year because there were eight or so coaches that I thought really deserved to be in the top portion of this ballot. And so I ended up having to make some really difficult cuts to the list that I had. But the one spot on this fake ballot that we all agreed on is that Mike Budenholzer is the coach of the year. Tyler, your thoughts. And what in the world was Jason Kidd doing with this team? He was beating Jason Kidd. (laughs) (laughs) I, 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 Uh. I, I, I hate the argument that people use when trying to discredit Giannis or Bud either. Either way, um, saying that one helped the other, or the they're only as good because of this other person. But what I think I, I get it, but just what the system that Bud has installed has been perfect. I mean, he spreads the floor, he opens up everything for Giannis. Uh, Brooke Lopez has been an awesome signing for them, and he's utilized everyone to their best ability. He's helped Eric Bledsoe get better. He helped Chris Middleton get to his first all-star game and they have the best record in the league and they made a big jump in overall performance this year. So I I think he's a pretty easy no-brainer. It's really simple for me as well. I mean, they made basically one addition this offseason in Brooke Lopez and he's been incredibly important for them. I don't want to understate that, but they made basically one addition and went from a bottom rung Eastern Conference playoff team to literally the best record in basketball. And... (laughs) A huge part of that is because, unlike Jason Kidd, Mike Budenholzer actually looked at his roster and actually looked at what his roster was good at and what his roster was bad at, and I know this is shocking to people, but actually molded his coaching philosophy to fit what his team was good at. And it seems so simplistic, and it also dramatically understates the incredible work that he did this year, but, I mean, they barely changed the team at all and went from competing for one of the last spots in the Eastern Conference playoffs to being the clear, clear top dog in the Eastern Conference following the departure of LeBron James. So I really couldn't put anyone else first on this. I want to pull up a uh, a fun little Brooke Lopez stat. This is total three-pointers attempted per year. So I won't say the year, I'll just run through it. Two, then two, then one, then zero, then one, then one, 10, 14, 387, 325, and now his first year in Milwaukee, 512. <laughs> um, there were a couple other centers. I tweeted this out like a month ago, so I don't remember who, but Al Horford had a similar arc, and there's a third center who kind of did the same thing. Um, clearly, they know how to use him super well. Brooklyn kind of tapped into it, but he's he's got better players around him now. And as you mentioned before, the Jason Kidd comparison ultimately shouldn't matter, but there's such a juxtaposition there that it's really impossible to ignore. And he's kind of lucky that it played out for him that way, that Kid ran this really weird defense where they were blitzing everyone on the perimeter, which I guess in theory could have worked on the Celtics last year with Rozier, but it doesn't work. We know it doesn't work because they did it every game and it doesn't work. And now with Bud, it's just like a really good, clean system. So you got to give him his due credit. He ran back, as, as was also mentioned, a fairly similar roster with one addition, and it's just way better than it was before. So... Yeah, it's a no-brainer. So Jeremy and I both agreed on the number two slot on our ballots. Tyler, you had this person fourth. And 
I think really it's just a matter of sort of where you slot out all of the remaining really excellent coaching jobs that we saw this season. But Jeremy and I both had Doc Rivers as number two on our coach of the year ballot. And this is also a pretty clear argument in my mind. The Clippers were not expected to be a playoff team coming into this year. And they were certainly not expected to be a playoff team after they traded their best player in Tobias Harris. But Doc has managed to get this roster to really buy in to work together incredibly well to maximize all of their strengths to try and hide as many of their weaknesses as possible and he's managed to get this team into the playoffs without really a transcendent superstar which is not something that you see all that much anymore in the nba so give him a ton of credit in my mind at least for the coaching job that he's done this year tyler do you want to talk about your number two guy so I went with Kenny Atkinson, um, and I think Doc has clearly been really impressive this year with what he's had to work with and you know what he's been able to do with that group. But I think Kenny Atkinson has kind of done a similar thing in the East. I mean, they have a team full of guys who I the highest draft pick was D'Angelo Russell, but they traded for him. They haven't had their own draft pick in years. These are just kind of a bunch of random guys that they've that other teams have given up on or they've drafted late in the first or second round. And I think they've just really overachieved with the type of players that they have. And Kenny Atkinson has done a great job of taking those guys to heights that most people didn't even imagine they could get to and really helping D'Angelo Russell with his breakout year. So I, I think they're similar and I definitely get the case for doc, but I just think what Kenny has done with you know the expected talent level i guess of the guys on that roster is just a little more impressive and especially and the just the culture that he's helped build there um has has been really important for that team both you and jeremy had the same person at number three on your respective ballots and he was someone who i heavily considered as well but Given the recent firing of Dave Yeager, I couldn't bring myself in my heart to give the number three slot to another coach that the Kings shouldn't have fired, but did fire in Mike Malone. (laughs) And I had Nate McMillan in that third slot instead because the Pacers should have been dead to right the moment that Victor Oladipo went down for the year. And McMillan has kept his team around and their defense has been stellar all year long. And their offense, you know, obviously fell off without their best player on the court, but they managed to keep up enough of an offensive game to stick around in the playoff picture. They ended up falling from around the third seed to around the fifth seed, but they held on to that third seed for an awfully long time, even after Oladipo's injury. And a lot of credit for that, I think, has to go to Nate McMillan. I don't hate it. I, I really like McMillan. Um the the way he's helped Miles Turner become a really good defender has been great. Um, I, I thought he should have gotten more respect for Coach of the Year last year, but just the, the jump that the Nuggets made this year, I, I kind of had to go with Malone. Um, the, the performance he's gotten out of guys off the bench who people had never heard of before, uh, go going to um or jumping up to the two seed after not even being in the playoffs last year is in the western conference is extremely impressive and just the the sense of identity that he's built on the nuggets 
I, I think just kind of gives him the, uh, the the slight edge over or in this group of guys for me. Yeah, I like Malone because just looking at what the Nuggets are, obviously now we know they're good, but going into the season, I just didn't think it would be a no-brainer that they would be really good um, just because you, you have Jokic as your centerpiece who obviously has all those offensive skills, but he's kind of slow. Can you hide him on defense? They have these guards who can shoot but are really streaky and sometimes get hurt. You have this bench where, again, you have guys that you know are decent, but like Beasley you are not initially probably weren't sure about. He had to make a tough decision on Isaiah Thomas. And there's just a lot of good pieces where you're not really sure if it's going to you know amount to being, what's the saying, like the, the sum being greater than its parts. So I, I just thought it took some some – some coaching wizardry to kind of get all the right pieces to work together. And with, with McMillan, how would I put it? I, I guess like, sure. The Pacers kept pace for a while with Oladipo out, but I, I guess for me, just seeing the end of a season, whenever a team flames out, I'm like, all right, you, you know, you had your moment, you were running with everyone for a while. And then the season just ended. And the way I would kind of think about that is like, if hypothetically the season went another 20 games, then you would see more separation between them and the other teams. So it, it was good while it lasted. I just felt like it kind of ended and it didn't it didn't like sustain for the whole season. So he loses points for me there. So there are two more coaches on the three of our respective ballots that we haven't discussed yet. And Tyler, I wanted to start with the guy that you had at number five on this ballot. Steve Clifford helped lead the Orlando Magic to their first playoff berth since the Dwight Howard trade. And their defense down the stretch of the season, basically after the All-Star break, they were, I think, the second best defensive team in basketball, which if you look up and down that roster is stunning. But a lot of credit has to go to Clifford, I think, for that defensive play, given that outside of Jonathan Isaac, they don't really have all that many defense first kind of players. The second half of the year, they've just been really impressive especially on the defensive end and I I think Clifford just deserves some respect and acknowledgement for the job he's done for getting this team that you know everyone kind of thought had one of the worst rosters in the league to making the playoffs and I I would be shocked if a casual fan could name more than one or two people on that team Um, he's just gotten the best out of them and he's helped make everyone on that team a better player especially with guys like Vucevic and Jonathan Isaac. And we we're kind of seeing the jump and potential come to fruition that we haven't seen out of a lot of those guys over the last couple of years. And finally, the guy that both Jeremy and I had in our number four spot, Greg Popovich, who really could win this award every year, honestly. And this year before the season, they traded their best player And then in training camp, their starting point guard tore his ACL. Yet here they are in the seventh seed, in the playoffs, just barely missed out on yet another 50-win season in San Antonio. I mean, there really isn't all that much more to say at this point. Dude, the Spurs, I just pulled up the standings. The Spurs were 32-9 at home. And just by no means is this a 32-at-9 at home team. Looking up the standings, you see the Rockets were 31-10. The Blazers were 32 and 9. They're always good at home. Nuggets 34 and 7. Warriors 30 and 11. There was a point in the season, and I have a feeling you guys might agree with me here. There was a point, maybe halfway through, where you're looking at the standings and you're like, I guess the Spurs are just out. <laughs> it's like the only logical conclusion. 
there were multiple points this season when I was worried about that. Like not just once, there were multiple times. Yeah. We're like, I don't know. The Kings look good. And um, I think the Timberwolves were keeping pace for a little bit. They finished the season 10 under, but there were a couple teams where you're like, yeah, I guess the Clippers will flame out. And I guess the Spurs, it's just, it's just too much. And then they won 48 games in the West, which is just absurd. So I think Pop gets a lot of credit for, again, turning role players you've never heard of into really good players. And LaMarcus Aldridge is having one of his best career seasons where I think, you know, I kind of expected like, you know, DeRozan just being kind of thrown into it and Aldridge being like, okay, showed up here to play with Kawhi and now it's not Kawhi. I thought there was just every opportunity for it to go south just because would have been a lot of guys who maybe weren't on the team, the kind of team they thought they would be on. And then they were really good. So, because, <laughs> you know, I think you just have to point to Pop to uh, make that all happen. All right, we are going to wrap up the first portion of this awards podcast here. Look out for part two on the all-NBA teams, all-rookie teams, and all-defensive teams coming out soon. But in the meantime, you can find Tyler's work on the hashtag basketball website. We're rapidly approaching draft season, so you're going to hear a lot more from him about some of the prospects that are coming up. And you can also find Jeremy's work on the hashtag basketball website and my work as well. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter, N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N, or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.